Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. As interest rates continue to rise, we look at the surge in home buyers desperate to get out of deals. Plus, tipping point, we look at how electric cars have begun dominating the auto market. And the Golden Globe goes to who cares? We look at the slow death of TV award shows. Plus, higher ground. Four years after legalization, we look at the state of BC's cannabis industry. That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Let's talk interest rates and mortgages. Uh, An article in the uh, Toronto Star today caught my attention. Now, the general theme was real estate agents were seeing a surge in home buyers desperate to get out of deals as rates continue to soar. Now, calls from concerned condo buyers have doubled over the last few months. Uh, According to the article, uh, many concerned, of course, uh, with the mortgage rates. Uh, The Bank of Canada hiked interest rates seven times last year with potentially another hike coming on January 23rd. Now, the Bank of Canada's key interest rate now sits at its highest level since, get this, 2008. 2023 looks to be an ugly year for homeowners caught between higher rates and falling prices. Joining me now to talk about these rates and the concerns many uh, uh, purchasers are seeing, uh, joining us now is Ron Butler. He's a mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages. Ron, thank you for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Canadians who put a down payment saying that they're going to purchase a condo uh, and uh, then the last 18 months or so, uh, everything uh, just sort of blew up when it comes to what was real in the market. And many of these uh, condos uh, that are in the process of being built are very close to being built. And now Canadians are, in many cases, feeling the pinch. Are you hearing more of this across the country as well? Yeah, this is a, a, a obvious and, and glaring issue that's coming up. Um, we should probably look at the parameters of it. Most high-rise condos that are being completed probably started four or five years ago. And those prices, in some cases, depending on the location, weren't too bad. In other words, compared with what some of the prices are today, they're actually uh, are pretty reasonable in terms of cost versus today's pricing. But the key problem has that has come up is the ability to get a mortgage. So if we look back those years ago, mortgage rates were in the twos or, you know, twos, ones, low threes, and now they're in the fours, fives, and sixes. So in many cases, and, and we also have the problem of the, we also have the problem of the stress test, which adds another 2% to these already much higher rates and makes qualification for a mortgage pretty damn difficult. So we end up in a position where people who had a reasonable thought that they could get a mortgage would qualify for a mortgage when they bought the condo four or five years ago, and now they're in a situation where the mortgage bank is just saying, no, you don't qualify. Mm -hmm. And where does that put those people? What kind of difficulty does that put those people into? Is it fair to say that this is is putting tens of thousands of homeowners 
uh, at risk of defaulting uh, on their mortgages? Well, in terms of the whole broad spectrum of mortgages in Canada for all people, for not just talking about these folks waiting to buy a condo. We talk about the broad spectrum of all people in Canada. It's absolutely a problem. It is no, there's no question that there's people today who are, have had a constant set of variable rate mortgage increases, who have had renewals at, in some cases, double the mortgage rate that they started out at, and those people are confronted with an almost unmanageable situation. Is there anything uh, in your mind on the policy side that can be done to help these people alleviate some of the financial stresses they're dealing with right now? Well, happily for people who are in true hardship, the, some of the banks and credit unions, particularly on the West Coast, have um, offered amortization changes. That if you come to them and make a case that you're in hardship, that you can uh, extend amortizations for, say, your amortization is at 22 years right now. You can extend it all the way up to 30, 35, and in some cases even 40 years. So that reduces your payment. That is one method. Now, you're not paying off your mortgage at all, really, at 40 years or 35 years, but you do have a method to get through this particular time of extremely high rates. So people should reach out. They should try if they're experiencing real hardship, uh, but in some cases it's just not going to be available. And at that stage, I don't know what the government can do. I mean, the government has supported in some ways this emergency reamortization for people in hardship. Uh, but short of reducing the central bank reducing prime rate, which I don't see happening anytime soon, or the government mandating an increase to 35 or 40 year amortization, I don't see that there's anything that can happen in the immediate future. You're in the mortgage and finance business. I mean, do you see uh, this being one of the main stories of 2023? And just, I mean, I, I, when you look at the numbers, ultimately something doesn't work here, and um, you know. Uh, you just worry that every one bankruptcy is someone's life who's been turned upside down. Is this going to be a, a big political headache, do you think, moving forward across the country? Well, absolutely. Uh, this is, without any sort of relief, this is going to grow and grow over the course of 2023. It's just the nature of the business. I mean, real estate and mortgages move slowly. They don't move quickly. It's not like the stock market. It doesn't happen in the blink of an eye. You just press a button and trade the stock. That's not the way it works. It moves slowly and it builds. And we shall see the buildup of kind of tragic outcomes for some people over the course of the next year, unless there is some kind of miraculous rate relief, which I just don't see it in the cards. Do you see more rate hikes? I mean, I, I know it's a tough one to answer, but I think the next uh, Bank of Canada announcement is set for January 23rd. Do you still see them holding or increasing rates at this particular point? Betting is 71% in favor of another 25 basis point, one quarter percent increase at the end of the month. Yes, that is uh, what the market has priced in right now. And there could easily be another, there could be another increase in March for all we know. Probably not the big 50 basis point, half a point, three quarter percent increases. Don't think we'll see those, but we could see a couple of quarter percent increases before this stops. For those that bought condos and, and certainly, uh, you know, three or four years ago, should there be any sympathy for those people? I mean, I do get calls sometimes and also on, on you know, hear it on social media that, you look, you took on too much debt. That is your problem. Or do you think there is sympathy among the public for some of this? Because there's others that say, look, something should be done to help these Canadians who bought in good faith and are now uh, at a point, as you say, with the stress test and everything else, they can't get a mortgage and they're, they're stuck. I think it's really important to delineate two separate camps. 
There are a group of people who bought condominiums in bunches on a speculative basis and with the intention not even to ever close. They didn't have the intention to ever close. They had the intention of selling by assignment and making a profit. Uh, and realistically, we can't be too uh, concerned about those folks. They were in the business of speculation. They were in the business of making a bet. And if their bet went wrong, uh, that's just the way it works if you're, if you're trying to make a profit on a speculative item. Uh, on the other hand, there's a group of people who bought places to live in. They bought family homes. They had a belief that they saved up their money, made deposits, and they planned on living in these properties. And for those people, that's a tragedy. I mean, they, they couldn't expect four years ago or 18 months ago or 24 months ago, uh, wherever, whatever it was that they put their deposit down, they weren't expecting the kind of unbelievably big change we've seen in the mortgage landscape. In fact, nobody did. Uh, if you look back to when rates first started going up, the, uh, the most aggressive prediction of rate increase, the most aggressive, nobody was even close, was that it would go up four? Sorry, it would go up um, to two and a quarter percent. It would increase two and a quarter percent. I mean, we're at four and a quarter, and we haven't even stopped yet. We don't even know if we've stopped yet. So it's just beyond anybody's guess the kind of increases we've experienced. Ron, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Take care. Well, it's not just interest rates, but inflation that's also stretching the family budget. The second harvest. Uh, is Canada's largest food rescue organization. Today, the organization released a new research examining the anticipated need for food charity in Canada in 2023. The organization surveyed 1,300 organizations across the country, including the Food Bank, many other um, religious groups as well, who provide charity uh, throughout the year. The research, Canada Needs a New Year's Resolution for Food Insecurity, found that nonprofit food programs that hand out food to vulnerable Canadians forecast the number of people they serve to grow by, get this, 60% in 2023. And that's on top of the 134% growth in 2022. Joining me now is Laurie Nichols. She's a CEO of Second Harvest. Laurie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we often talk about um, inflation, the impact on, on food. We've talked about uh, COVID, uh, supply chain challenges. Um, but with your new report, did you realize that it was pretty bad, really bad in regards to just food security in this country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Second Harvest, we're Canada's largest food rescue organization, and we work across the supply chain supporting charities and nonprofits with food. And we have just seen an increase year over year of uh, people having difficulty accessing the food they need. Uh, what needs? What do we need to do to fix this issue? Well, a couple things. We need to have some short-term solutions. Um, and I think when the government stop the COVID era interventions like the emergency food security fund or the surplus food rescue fund that wasn't done with a lot of thought in my opinion and we should have continued those while we work out actual solid policy changes legislative changes so that people have enough money in their pockets that they can go to their grocery store and purchase the food they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, many have said, look, inflation is uh, hopefully will make a dent in inflation this year in 2023. Um, that in your mind isn't uh, enough. Uh, give me a sense of some of the stories you've been hearing from, from different organizations or within your organizations in regards to the impact this insecurity is having on everyday people. Well, I mean, first I'd say, you know, wages definitely need to be indexed 
to inflation. So that even if inflation is isn't skyrocketing as much or food inflation, it doesn't have that much of an impact because we have never had wages that are indexed to inflation. But the impact is is demoralizing. It's depressing uh, charities across the country. And just for context, you know, there are 61,000 nonprofits and uh, charities that are supporting people with food. So that's at your senior centers, your community centers, your food banks, your schools, you name it. So I don't think people really understand how many how many charitable outlets there are for people to access food. So, you know, you see a Safeway at your corner store or Costco. So for every one of those, there are four charities giving out food. And what's happening to this system, it is just being crushed. Uh, there we're getting calls, emails, not only are there more people needing food, uh, the people that were already needing food are needing more food. They need perishable food. And I think what happens often is when we don't have very much money to purchase food, we end up buying the least healthy food. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, terrible for educational outcomes, health outcomes. So, I mean, we haven't even, we haven't seen the worst of it, right? Like we've lost the middle class. The rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. And today's food insecure person is not what people think it is, right? These are people with jobs. These are the working poor. But wages are low, gig work is a thing, and just that there's no social safety net. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking at your study here. 39% of nonprofits say they'll need 50% more perishable food next year to meet the demand. Uh, 44% of nonprofits that you um, uh, uh, surveyed said they'll need f- uh, 50% or, or more non-perishable food next year to meet the demand. Uh, and then 70% said they need both food and funding. It's not just about funding, but food as well. These are significant mm-hmm. challenges. Is this the worst you've seen it uh, in your time at Second Harvest? It's the worst I've seen it in my time uh, working for any nonprofit. It is skyrocketing, right? Like we had some supports in for COVID. They're all gone. There's always been poverty in Canada and food insecurity, but we're just not doing the right things. We are in an unaffordable country and unaffordable cities, and I don't I don't know how we expect Canadians to catch up when, you know, there's just not a level playing field anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the argument some will make that, look, we're in this inflationary period because government was handing out too much money, and that's one of the reasons we're in this mess, not just in Canada, but in other parts of the world as well, that there was too much money during COVID made available, and that is what's caused some of this food insecurity, certainly the inflation. Uh, sure. I mean, there's an argument for both sides, but the truth is I don't want to go down these roads. I just want to make sure that people have the food that they need to be healthy. And who is always the one that are, are hurt in this the most? It's always the most marginalized. It's the vulnerable population. So why can't we focus on lifting that population up instead of, you know, pointing the fingers? Like, how can we do this? There are absolutely ways to manage this that um, don't impede the rest of the country, right? Like, we could have policy interventions that are supporting uh, wage increases. So industry has to pay more. If you're a frontline worker and you are making billions of dollars, then pay your frontline staff more. So, you know, there are steps that we could be taking, but nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. Uh, so, we, yeah, we have inflation. Yeah. Uh, other jurisdictions have raised minimum wage. We've raised minimum wage here in British Columbia uh, to $15 plus. Other jurisdictions have done the same. Is this more of a case of government sending a food security check just for 2023? to households? Would that be something you'd be supportive of? Or or do you think, I mean, because when you talk about employers 
you know, paying more, that, that's up to government whether they wish to have a basic living income, and many of them have raised the the minimum wage. Or do you think that we need a temporary, some sort of uh, help to Canadians that help them to deal with their grocery bills to get through this high inflationary period? I think we need both. And even though we've raised the minimum wage, like the living wage in Toronto is $23. So uh, the minimum, I mean, the living wage is $23. Minimum wage is still around fifteen fifty. So there's a big discrepancy there. Just because the minimum wage has been raised doesn't mean it's a living wage. You're still living below the poverty line. And so there's work that needs to be done there. Even though it's being increased, there is some government work that needs to be done there. Um, and I don't think it's a, an and or it's a both. We need short-term solutions, which absolutely give some money to households so that they can uh, pay their bills, feed their kids, and not have to worry about uh, paying their rent and feeding their children for the short term. But you, you absolutely need legislative reform to make sure that people have adequate income. Lori, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, no problem. Have a great day. I see Rihanna is here, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say something very controversial. This I will actually get in trouble for this. Rihanna, you take all the time you want on that album, girl. Don't let these fools on the internet pressure you into nothing. Then along came the best gift. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Shut up, please. <laughs> I, I can beat you up, okay? And that's serious. I was gonna give this speech in Italian, but I'm too drunk because there was no food. The food, when we got there, they were like, the food is over. You can't have any, it was just in drink. So like, I, so. It's a blueprint and I followed it my whole career. It's very simple. There's three things you just do these three things. Pay your taxes, mind your business, and keep Will Smith's wife's name. Welcome back to the show. Those are some of the sounds from last night's Golden Globe Awards. Now, truth be told, I didn't know who won last night. I didn't even remember that they were on last night until uh, producer Stephen Chang mentioned mentioned it to me this morning. Now, you shouldn't be surprised. Hollywood award shows are setting records in all the worst ways. The Emmy Awards attracted the smallest audience in at least three decades uh, last September, while the last Golden Globes fell to a 13-year low. Now, many are predicting the April Oscars will be the least watched in uh, the modern era, and the Grammys are trying to avoid uh, a similar fate. TV networks are now quick to blame the pandemic, and there's no question it did have an effect. But the decline in ratings isn't new. It's just accelerated uh, during the pandemic. Over the past decade, the Grammys audience has shrunk by more than 20 million viewers, while the Globes has, uh, has lost more than 10 million. Uh, joining me now to talk about the struggling award show is Rick Forcha. He's a movie blogger at Rick's Picks. Rick, thank you for joining us. Hey, a pleasure to be here always, Jazz. Well, we haven't been talking about award shows for a long time um, because of COVID in many ways. Uh, this will be the year in regards to some believe uh, a greater interest in in, in them, but uh, that is still up in the air. Uh, last night's Golden Globes, first of all, your impression of the award show itself. Yeah, not impressed. I didn't think it was a good show at all. Uh, I used to like the Golden Globes, by the way, uh, not because of the selection of the winners or the losers, but rather because it was the one award show where everybody ate and drank 
And when the folks got up on stage to accept their awards, uh, they often were, you know, having a little too much medicine. And uh, there were some funny, funny moments. Uh, last night's show was a bit of a drudge. And um, there were a number of people who decided uh, when they got their awards that uh, they were more important than the show itself. So they took far, far more time than they should have. And uh, I would much rather see them say, thank you very much. Thanks, mom and dad. Thanks to my producer. And they're gone. But uh, when you get somebody such as Michelle Yeoh, who's a performer that I really like, uh, simply saying when the music starts to play her off, I'm not going. I have things to say. And other people pick up with that. It just becomes a drudgery. So uh, I didn't like the show. I, I didn't like uh, what, the, what happened with the show. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association used to have just 83 members, and they were virtually all older white men living in Los Angeles, because that's one of the requirements, but you have to be assigned to a foreign press. So a lot of these people came from publications that you or I have never heard of, would never read and would never see. And um, they were in Hollywood. They were doing such things as getting all kinds of trips uh, from places like Netflix. And uh, for the people that, uh, for example, that uh, produce Emily in Paris Mm -hmm. for Netflix, uh, took the Hollywood Foreign Press people on a big junket, uh, looked after them, gave them money, gave them gifts. And then uh, when the uh, when Emily in Paris was nominated, oh, what a surprise that is. So this is now a knee-jerk reaction to kind of stop some of that stuff. And it's going to take a while to work it out if the show survives. You know, last night's show was on NBC. NBC did not run it last year. And there is some question as to whether they will do it again in the coming year. And I think that's part of the bigger picture as to whether award shows are really relevant in today's world anyway. Jess? Yeah, I mean, I, I, from what my sense of just looking at social media, and I didn't get a chance to see it last night, but was that it, it, the show came uh, across as a bit woke. But the bigger question that you've raised here is about uh, award shows themselves. Many would argue that they're generally very top-down. The establishment or the institution itself sort of decides what is the best, what is, what, what we should be watching. And in the era of social media, when everybody has an opinion now, uh, these award shows seem just, um, in one case, elitist, and another case, just out of touch. And, and, I, and I agree with you. I don't know how they turn things around. I mean, if I think of the Oscars last year, the only thing I'm going to remember is Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, and that's a sad yeah, indictment that's right. of, of the award show. That's, that's the only thing we remember. Yep, that's the highlight. Uh, and you're right about that. Um, and, and they're absolutely right about the top-down approach as well and the elitist approach. Uh, the Oscars is uh, the Rolls-Royce or the Cadillac of all the award shows, allegedly. And uh, it becomes less and less relevant because uh, uh, the Oscars have uh, for traditionally uh, had a couple of things going for them. First of all, they love movies about movies. So if somebody makes a movie like La La Land, it's about the production of movies or Hollywood in itself, that's going to get a nomination. Uh, They also seem to have an aversion to movies that make a lot of money. So a film like Top Gun Maverick or Avatar, uh, The Way of Water, these movies are now in the one and two billion dollar range. They probably won't get top awards because the Academy itself feels that, um, well, that's so common. Everybody's going to see those. So they select something that most of us have never seen and, mm-hmm. and maybe will never see. So that's the Oscars, and, and they have not changed much. And in this area, as you said, Jazz, of social media, when we can get on social media, find out what other people are feeling, 
and live tweet during these award shows, you recognize that what's happening on television from the award show and what most of the people watching are saying is a huge disconnect there, just a huge disconnect. Yeah, it's such a structural challenge. I mean, if you think about it, well, the Grammy, instead of just movies, let's look at the Grammy Awards for a second. Yes, they can have artists who sell well, but you may find an artist on YouTube or on Spotify that you never have heard of that you may, may really love their music, and they're never going to be found uh, at the Grammy Awards. Or uh, if you are watching, let's say, the Emmys or even uh, the Oscars, you may have a TV show or a movie that, uh, that's come out of Korea that you saw on Netflix that you're not going to, you wouldn't necessarily see at your local movie theater. And the movie theater itself, you know, I go to movies a lot less now because TVs are so. Uh, they're so advanced today. They're bigger, great sound. You can have a nice movie room even uh, if, if you have the space in your home. You don't necessarily need to go to the movies anymore. So uh, you're absolutely right. The structural challenge, the long-term challenge, and I don't know how they get around this at the end of the day. Yeah, I don't either. And they all seem to, um, over time, mm-hmm. seem to kind of coalesce into one. Uh, mm-hmm. The American Music Awards, the Country Music Association Awards, uh, the MTV Video Awards, uh, the People's Choice Awards, uh, these things are, you know, you see the same people all the time, the same artists. Uh, when there's a country music show, it's always Dirk Bentley and uh, all the same bunch of guys. Uh, the same is true of all of the music award shows. And as I said initially, the public was clearly tiring of this, Jazz, because the ratings for award shows have been slipping year by year by year. And some of them are no longer even on major networks. They're streaming or they're on uh, some of the more elite uh, networks that we don't even get in Canada. And that's a sign as well that uh, people are just getting tired of it. So I think um, in order to be able to say this is a great movie or that's a great movie or this is an award winner, uh, they have to do something more than have a bunch of uh, people that we don't know following a plan that we don't know about, selecting people, some of whom we never get to know, I think they need to do a much better job than that or recognize that it's a different world. Yeah, different world, and let's move on. Yeah, absolutely. Rick, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Jazz. Canada had more than 25 million registered light-duty vehicles in 2019. That's uh, pre-COVID, of course, and at 168,000 vehicles, EVs currently represent a small portion of that market. Now, the energy transition continues. Canada has announced new vehicle sale goals, targeting a 10% share by EVs by 2025, uh, 40% by 2030, and 100% by 2040. So this equates to about 3% of the vehicle fleet in 2025, 11% by 2030, and 60% by 2040. Some say this is too aggressive. Others say it's totally reasonable. Well, over the weekend, I was just looking at some numbers, and it looks like the tide has turned when it comes to electrification uh, in the German auto market. Now, it may be just for a month, but what I found really interesting, that plug-in electrical vehicles were taking the majority of sales for the first time uh, in December. Plug-ins took 55% of the month's passenger auto sales in Germany, uh, with full electric vehicles taking a third, 33%, and plug-in hybrids taking over a fifth, so 22%. So 55.4% of that month's passenger auto sales or uh, plug-ins, which is, um, many have said, that is fascinating. The overall auto volume that month of December was 314,000 vehicles sold. So that's quite impressive. 55% of them were electric. Joining me now is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist behind Cato Car Guy. 
Com. I want to chat with Jeremy today about um, that specific number in Germany and a couple of other things about EVs. He's our guy we always talk to. Jeremy, welcome. Hi, Jazz. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. What do you think about these numbers in Germany? I mean, the energy transition is supposed to take a while. We all sort of know that. But what did what did you what do you take from the December numbers? Well, uh, I, I guess uh, like you, I took a little time to look at what what, what happened in uh, 2022. And uh, the German numbers pale against the Norwegian numbers, where 80% of new vehicles sold in Norway were battery electric vehicles. Uh, so Germany's kind of catching up to the market leaders, I, I guess, is, is one thought that I have. The second thought that I had, though, was where is the electricity coming from to charge up all those electric vehicles? Because Germany has closed all but two of its nuclear plants and has put online more coal-fired uh, electricity generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we may be, <laughs> Germ- the Germans may be driving clean vehicles, but the energy they're putting into them, uh, not so clean. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in your mind, that's always going to be the challenge. Whatever numbers government may throw out, like I said, 60% of, they want the vehicle fleet in Canada, 60% of the vehicle f- fleet to be yep. electric by 2040. That's a significant number. But in your mind, uh, at the end of the day, we have to have significant amount of uh, electricity generation, clean generation, to really justify that uh, transition, don't we? We do. I, I guess I would I would say that, uh, you know, when I look at this, I think that the messaging is, uh, I, I put it down into three sort of big buckets. One is, is infrastructure. Like, you know, if we are going to hit 60% or 70% or whatever government target is out there of electric vehicles, where are they going to get their charging? And then the second one is resources, where where, where the raw materials uh, associated with making electric vehicles like lithium and other precious metal, uh, not other precious, but precious metals and so on, uh, and copper and these elements that are critical for the electrification of the fleet. And then the third thing is the technology, because while it's it's great to say, if you look at Bloomberg, uh, NEF projections, 40% of new vehicles by the end of this decade could be battery electric vehicles. That's great, but the technology out there now isn't mature enough to get the prices down and to get the law, um, uh, you know, that to make them affordable for the average consumer. So, you know, you, we're looking at infrastructure, resources, and technology, and all of those things haven't been developed properly. It, it's a big challenge. And on the resources side, just mining these raw materials presents another problem because. Miners haven't been building new mines for decades because of the environmental um, challenges of mining cleanly. So it's great for uh, various um, prognosticators to predict that we're going to hit this number of electric vehicles. But what I'm waiting for our uh, innovation minister here in Canada, Mr. Champagne, uh, to, to tell me is, what is he going to do about those three elements? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just look at the fight we've had to get uh, Site C built, and I, right. numbers I've, I think, read, report I read not too long ago said we need two Site Cs. Just if everybody decided to go electric in this province, we need at least two Site Cs, and we're barely getting this one built. So there's definitely challenges uh, there before us. One of the other things I found interesting over the weekend in regards to this energy transition is that when you think of Japanese car makers, you think of Toyota, you think of Honda, you think of reliable vehicles, and the Germans, sorry, 
the Japanese have done a fabulous job in, in carving out a significant portion of the auto industry globally, well-respected. But what I found interesting here is there's no Japanese car maker, car maker makes the top 20 when it comes to EV sales at this particular point, um, which is very interesting. What Number one, it tells me, what do they know that we don't? Or B, have they just been slow in, in in chasing that market because while it is small at this point, it is going to grow very quickly. What are your thoughts on why the Japanese have fallen behind uh, beyond just Tesla, but uh, you know Volkswagen and many other uh, uh, traditional car companies? Hey, well, I, I, I would argue that the answer to your either or question is yes. It, it's both. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the Japanese automakers, led by Toyota, have long felt that plug-in battery electric vehicles. Uh, are not a long-term solution that um, led by Toyota and pushed by Japan, the Japanese government. They've, they've felt uh, they've argued the long-term solution uh, is is, a, uh, hydrogen, is a hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. With the bridging technology being hybrid technology and um, and plug-in hybrid technology, which is where Toyota has put most of its energy and is, is still largely advocating. Um, hybrids of various types, both the plug-in hybrid version and the, the Prius-type version, uh, as the best bridging technology because it causes the, loss, the, less, the least amount of disruption and requires um, a more sensible approach to the infrastructure problems that we just talked about. So that's been Toyota's position. And, and you know, there's the, the naysayers out there that have, have been arguing that Toyota uh, has gotten way behind and may never catch up. Uh, you've probably seen some of the same things that, that I've been looking at and hearing the same things is that Toyota's gotten so b- far behind uh, BYD and Tesla and Volkswagen that it may never c- uh, catch up. But I wouldn't count out Toyota, and I wouldn't bet the farm on the fleet getting fully battery electric or even 40 or 50 percent of new vehicle sales battery electric by the end of the decade because at some point we're going to run up against those three buckets that we just talked about and toyota has been hedging its bets it's fascinating as you get this interesting news from germany uh, and then you think oh why, why is japan falling behind or certainly the car companies in japan falling behind but it's a further reminder that whatever transition this is it's going to be interesting it'll be uneven frustrating at times and at the same time moving very quickly as well so it's a it's a it's a great industry to watch and we're always thankful that you're around to sort of provide some context for us jeremy thank you so much oh that's great i i hope chat again oh, absolutely <laughs> Skiing is all about pristine, natural terrain and long descents. The views are truly breathtaking. There's an epicenter for heliskiing in the world right here in BC. Now, while the heliskiing uh, heli industry continues to grow, there has also been consistent complaint about its impact on the environment. Well, today the industry announced a new plan called Sightline 2030 to guide the helicopter and snowcat skiing industry. The core focus for the industry is for 100% of Helicat Canada members to be carbon neutral by 2030. Now, Helicat Canada represents 16 snowcat skiing operators and 22 heliskiing operators who operate in 49 different areas right here in British Columbia. Their president, Rob Ron, joins us now. Uh, Rob, thank you for speaking to us today. Great to uh, uh, have the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, you've uh, released a new document as an association, uh, Sightline 2030. Why did you feel it was important for you to, uh, to, to sort of bring these specific policies? We can talk about the specifics in a second, but why was it important for you to bring forward with this, this 2030 document? 
Well, I think it was important for us as, a, uh, as an organization to uh, really map out a future direction that we want to go to uh, collectively together and uh, to celebrate our successes to date and, and uh, be very upfront with some of our challenges and, and what we see as the opportunities going forward and to share that uh, more widely. Uh, it's safe to say that when you think about heli skiing globally, that uh, Canada is the epicenter, and British Columbia specifically. Uh, there has been concerns and uh, uh, directed at the industry, specifically uh, in regards to uh, emissions, uh, GHGs. Walk me through what you think you'll be able to achieve with this uh, sightline um, policy. So yes, we uh, we recognize that uh, like every other activity, uh, heli and casking, there there is an impact. Uh, we recognize that. Uh, you know, first step is to uh, take concrete measures to try and reduce those emissions uh, uh, by using things like uh, uh, micro hydro, uh, various efficiency initiatives. We're looking at sustainable aviation fuels uh, when they get approved. And uh, we're also uh, using offsets uh, for what we're not able to reduce. And I think it's uh, important to note uh, our overall environmental footprint. Um, uh, We can debate the relative carbon footprint of various modes of transport, but, uh, you know, we have the opportunity with helicopters to uh, come in and leave and, and leave nothing but ski tracks behind. So uh, we uh, minimal footprint that way. And uh, our helicopters, um, our use of them in the winter enables uh, BC to have a very robust fleet of helicopters that uh, becomes critical at other times of the year, especially with firefighting in the in the summer and so on. Uh, what would you say to critics who say, "Look, you you need to scale smaller," which is you know, it's the opposite of what you want to be doing as a business, that voluntary offsets really don't make the, um, you know, don't actually help an industry get to that more cleaner, uh, greener future. What do you say to that argument? I, I say, uh, yes, you, you know, we, we recognize that we do uh, have an impact, but we are working actively to reduce that. And we also bring so many other benefits uh, to the province, uh, whether it comes to safety, uh, very significant uh, uh, contribution to the, the economies of rural rural uh, communities uh, in the province. And uh, for instance, in the uh, three years prior to the pandemic, uh, our uh, socioeconomic uh, impact analysis showed that we brought in uh, uh, $325 million of revenue to the province annually with $165 million of GDP and these are in uh, very small rural communities primarily where we really are the, the big game in town uh, and providing uh, family supporting jobs uh, for uh, uh, almost 3,000 employees total. Is there still a challenge for legitimacy isn't the right word, but credibility at times for the industry? Uh, I don't uh, challenge the, the economic impact and the impact you particularly have in rural British Columbia. But there are several countries that do ban heli-skiing. I think France is one, Norway, I think Japan uh, as well. Um, do you worry that there is still criticism of this industry and that you still have an uphill battle in regards to justifying your industry uh, in regards to climate change? Uh, uh, because the economic side I understand, but there have been other countries that do ban this practice. Do you worry that there's, that still remains 
an existential challenge for the industry? We recognize, uh, yes, you know, we do have our critics, but we're very proud of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, our activities really do highlight uh, British Columbia as, as the preeminent uh, skiing destination uh, worldwide. It's something that every skier aspires to uh, uh, across the globe. And our, our role in, in safety in the backcountry is critical. Uh, we have the largest group of trained backcountry uh, professionals in our guides, and the role they play is critical in, in making sure that uh, the backcountry of BC is safer for everyone. Uh, we uh, collectively spend about 40,000 hours a year collecting uh, snowpack data that we share with the Canadian Avalanche Association and Avalanche Canada mm-hmm. to produce the uh, avalanche bulletins that help uh, uh, keep uh, British Columbia safe uh, as they enjoy the backcountry. Are you working with Indigenous communities as well? Because so much of what you do, as you say, is in uh, outside the Lower Mainland, it's in rural communities. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your involvement with the Indigenous com- uh, communities. Yes, we uh, we uh, view the indigenous communities of our local uh, local areas as key partners going forward. Uh, we we are feel very fortunate uh, to be able to operate on the ancestral territories of so many of the First Nations, and are working uh, actively uh, with them uh, on various uh, initiatives, uh, wildlife management. Uh, caribou uh, recovery projects and really trying to develop um, a, a career opportunities for Indigenous youth. And so all our operators are actively working with uh, their local uh, First Nations uh, communities. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about uh, skiing. I know it's a, a growing industry and uh, look forward to chatting with you uh, in the future as well. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Vancouverites will get to experience their first Lyft Cannabis Business Conference and Expo since 2020, just before the COVID-19 restrictions chilled the trade show circuit. The Lyft Business uh, Conference expects about 125 exhibitors and 7,000 people to attend uh, the Vancouver event uh, this weekend. Since uh, cannabis was legalized uh, about four, just over 40 years ago, there have been many changes in the market here uh, in British Columbia and across Canada. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the state of the cannabis industry is Jacqueline Pahoda, Executive Director at the Retail Cannabis Council of BC. Jacqueline, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, just where the, where is the cannabis industry in your mind? There's obviously a lofty uh, predictions made and, and, and always the case. Uh, you know, things have to shake out a little bit. It, there's still more to do, of course. It's been about just over, I guess, four and a half years or so. Your thoughts on where, where, where the cannabis industry is in BC today? Um, yeah, I mean, I think with the project of legalization, uh, I think we have established a really strong um, uh, network of access for British Columbians, so legal stores in most jurisdictions across the, the province, uh, although we do still have a couple of holes uh, for access. Um, and we have also seen, you know, um, BC-based producers and uh, 
through processors pop up. Uh, so by that, I mean people who are, you know, growing cannabis and, you know, doing transformative activities with it, uh, who are BC-based, um, which is really, uh, I mean, a very important thing uh, for this province because, you know, we are looking at uh, a sector that is really ours to own. So I would say that we have made you know, good progress uh, but I do think that there is uh, still uh, a tough road to hoe ahead for our sector. When you say there's a there's a couple of challenges, a couple of holes, uh, what were you talking about? Well, in terms of access uh, for legal cannabis, we're still, you know, there are a significant number of uh, folks in the lower mainland who still don't have storefront access in their municipality. Uh, you know, we're hopefully we'll, we'll see that change in um, you know, municipalities like Surrey and Richmond. We still don't have any storefront access there. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, uh, most British Columbians have a reasonable access to legal cannabis. Uh, there's been talk, obviously, over the last few years that there's been tremendous amount of oversupply. Talk, speak to me a little bit about that as to how that has been shaking out over the last four years. You know, that's a really tough question, Jazz, because I think that the supply picture is not reflective of the actual cannabis market or the demand from the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the oversupply was the result of some stockpiling that was happening in anticipation of legalization. Um, mm-hmm. So we had, you know, larger companies with really, really big uh, vaults full of cannabis. And it's just an unfortunate fact that cannabis doesn't really work that way. You can't just save it for a rainy day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is a a product that is, you know, like more akin to a fresh tomato than it is to a can of tomato sauce. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so what we're seeing now is we're actually seeing a shift in the market towards um, smaller scale cultivators starting to dominate especially, um, you know, in um, independent retailers. I think that that's something that has really changed a lot in the last uh, specific year. Did COVID uh, slow down the, the industry's growth? I mean, what impact did COVID have? I know it's impacted many businesses, but I'm very uh, uh, interested in, in what impact it had on, on such a young industry. Well, you know, I I feel we're the only COVID success story that there is. You know, we really? opened, yeah, for the duration. I mean, think, we think about this, you know. Um, we opened, um, you know, there were, there are 3,900 private retail, uh, rather uh, retail stores across Canada now. Um, so that the majority of that happened during COVID, um, you know, in 2020 is when we saw the Ontario market explode. We went from having, you know, two stores to having 1,900 stores. So, you know, retail on the retail side, you know, we were able to establish that footprint even with COVID, uh, you know, because I think that cannabis is a product that, you know, people are, are excited to access. Um, and in terms of, you know, the rollout of legalization and I think the ability for us to react to maybe some of the more critical um, challenges that we're facing, things like maybe the tax structure, et cetera. I think COVID um, didn't necessarily negatively impact them, but I think that the focus for government has been elsewhere, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, some have said, look, uh, the government needs uh, to give the industry greater flexibility in regards to the product that they do offer. Uh, some have gone as far as to call the, the, the cannabis that is grown here or in Canada as corporate pot or corporate cannabis, <laughs> you know. Uh, I love those names sometimes. Your thoughts in regards to, I mean, it, it is going to be regulated. It is regulated, much like alcohol is regulated um, uh, in 
in this country. Do you think there is going to be room for greater flexibility in regards to potency, in regards to experimentation? Or do you think because of um, government oversight, there's a certain standardization in regards to the product that you are offering? Um, well, you know, I think that corporate weed, that's funny. I hear government weed a lot, um, which is <laughs> like, it's funny because the government doesn't grow it. They don't sell it, but you know, <laughs> government will find but, uh, a make, will find a way to lose money on weed. I think it did the first six months actually to me. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on that one. Uh, but in terms of the flexibility, um, you know, I, I am of the opinion that the current regulations around several different you know, form factors of products. So, I mean, like kinds of consumer products, specifically edibles, are are really holding back the sector. Um, you know, consumers have an expectation around you know potency and in effect, and then also they already have an expectation around how much those products should cost because they were buying them in an unregulated space, right? Mm-hmm. And if we don't give them the equivalent in a regulated market. So if we, for instance, like if I want to buy a a 50 milligram edible, right now it is not legal for me to do that in a retail store. I can only buy a 10 milligram edible cannabis product. So if I want to buy a product that's higher dosage than that, I can either buy multiple products costing me more money as a consumer, or I can go to an unregulated source, hmm. right? And the likelihood is I'm going to go to an unregulated source. Yeah, that that, that, that makes sense. Uh, in, in regards to cafes, when you think of cannabis cafes, you think of uh, Amsterdam, do you see um, the the public open to something like that happen, or do you think it's going to take time in regards to acceptance of uh, cannabis cap- cafes here in BC? Well, they did just release a report on the public consultation that they completed, uh, they being the provincial government, completed um, in, I think it was 2021. Uh, so it was a, a public uh, survey, a public open uh, call for recommendations, uh, as well as a phone survey that they did that was uh, randomly selected. So the results were out. Um, the random sampling of British Columbians, 61% of them, or in favor of consumption spaces. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's a pretty strong uh, approval rating, a pretty strong mandate. Um, with the online submissions, we saw a, a really different number. There's only um, all told 34% of um, people who participated in the online uh, polling were in favor. And I mean, I believe that the, there's a self-selecting bias in there. You know, you might mm-hmm. be really, really in favor of cannabis consumption or really, really against it and get online and, you know, fill out that survey. Mm-hmm. But with a random telephone poll, right, you're just a person picking up the phone, giving your opinion. Yeah. So I think that the public are there. I think that they are ready to, um, you know, and I'm not sure about smoking because that is a, a really big challenge that's a hurdle you know because we have a long history of you know really tightly regulating smoking activities but there are lots of other ways that we consume cannabis right we can eat it we can drink it we can put it on our skin um these are all ways that we could you know incorporate consumption in licensed consumption into you know our, our communities in a way that would be a i think really driving tourism which would be amazing Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, right, giving people a safe social space to you know have the experience in, which is also fabulous. Yeah. Ja- yeah, Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time. And once again, I want to remind our listeners, the Lyft Business Conference, the Cannabis Business Conference, is this weekend here in Vancouver. The first one that'll be uh, that we've had since uh, since COVID. So, congratulations to you, and all the best to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. BC Prosecution Service has launched a recruitment drive for Crown lawyers 
and other staff, part of a series of recent measures to address repeat violent offending. A statement from the service says it's aiming to hire up to 40 Crown Counsel this year, some to fill vacancies created by the dedication of prosecutors to repeat violent, violent offender response teams. Those teams are part of the province's Safer Communities Action Plan launched by Premier David Eby. Joining me uh, right now is Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of British Columbia, to talk a little bit about the announcement today, but also uh, to focus a little bit on um, what the province is hoping uh, to achieve through all of this in regards to dealing with violent offenders. Uh, Minister Sharma, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, First of all, the announcement today in regards to hiring up to 40 Crown Council, what impact do you think that's going to have? Well, it's all part of our bigger um, Safer Communities Action Plan. So the the goal for this hiring, which is, I think, the largest recruitment drive they've, they've had, is to do what we part of that plan, which is to have a specialized um, unit that's dedicated to repeat violent offenders. So um, we know that that having dedicated people work across the prosecutors work with probation officers and police officers will help with those repeat violent offenders and help with keeping them off the streets and communities safe. Um, so it's part of one of the steps we're taking in our in our community action plan. I'm really pleased to see the the hiring that announcement today from the BC Prosecution Service. Now, the Premier did also announce the hiring of more police officers as well, uh, along with the Solicitor General. Is that part of the plan then as well? That's right. So particularly in rural and remote areas, we know that the RCMP have been under-resourced. Um, and so it was a big announcement that the Premier even made for $230 million to go to staffing up across this province in areas where it's needed. So that was definitely part of it. Is this going to be enough in regards to repeat offenders, though? I mean, some of these stories that we're hearing, I think it was last week or earlier this week, uh, somebody was arrested with a 100 uh, uh, convictions in the past. A lot of it was shoplifting, petty stuff, but it is a significant impact on, of course, local businesses and people as well. Uh, are those the kind of folks we're talking about here, or are we talking about just violent offenders as well? Well, we know that every all communities, and we hear it across the province, they want to feel safe. They want to feel like the government is working across federal government and local governments to take action on it. So it's, it's part of the work that we're doing to drill down on what's needed. I've been meeting, um, like recently, with mayors and councils, and I know that my, my counterpart, Minister Farnworth, has also been meeting across the province to hear about specific issues in communities. Um, and that'll be part of the work that maybe has, like, responses that, that get at what's happening in specific communities. But the Bigger Safer Communities Action Plan will invest the resources needed to do that. I Part of my role is also to advocate with the federal government um, to the changes in bail policy to help understand um, what the impacts are so that so we know that when people are repeatedly committing violence, acts that they are held um, so communities are safe but there's bigger challenges that we hear in communities that go towards investing in RCMP resources having the mental health supports for people so um, they have the supports they need to keep out of the criminal justice system and another big part of the focus that I'm on I'm working on is Indigenous justice centers so investing in those to reduce the incarceration of Indigenous people across the province so it's many things that we're working on um, that will that will help address these issues. What do you say to critics? Who says this should have been done two years ago, uh, and I, this does take time. But the government has been late and sleep at the switch on this one, uh, and some of these are longer term challenges. And I get that, but the government should have moved this on this a lot faster. We've had a sort of a catch and release program, as the opposition has said. What do you say to your critics? Is this should have been done a lot lot sooner? 
Well, it was because of the recent um, federal changes to bail that communities across Canada are experiencing these challenges when it comes to repeat violent offenders being released on bail and causing harm to communities. So, um, you know, our approach to government has always been to take action on complicated issues, and certainly the last couple of years have been full of them. And we know that this is one of them that's a result of the many challenges with the pandemic and, and rising costs and, 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 you know, resources that need to be invested in communities. So it's part of the work that we're doing ongoing over the last many years, investing in mental health resources, making sure that we're responding to needs that are emergent and that are challenging in our very complicated time. So it's always the work of government to respond to the challenges and the needs of community, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.